Hello there. I'm Christopher Lee, and this this is SITREP, SITREP, your Defence and Global Affairs Discussion Programme from BFBS Radio. You're very welcome. Today, a very special review and preview of the sometimes very dangerous world we live in and many fight in. We're coming to the end of the first decade of the new millennium. We're going to look back over the decade and then look forward to the year to come. Yes, it's a it's the sort of thing we all do at this time of the year. But somehow, as 2009 turns into 2010 there is a great sense of urgency to world politics and security that many can remember since the close of the Second World War. The stakes are higher, perhaps. With me, the former diplomatic editor of the Daily Mail, John Dickey, from University College London, Dr. Marty McCauley from City University here in London, Dr. Rosemary Hollis, and Professor Michael Clark, the director of the Royal United Services for Defence and Security Studies. Now, I was reading, Michael Clark, that... Um, uh, Time magazine, in Time magazine, he called it the decade from hell. Anybody go along with that? No, I wouldn't go along with that. I think it's a decade of disorder. There's no question about that. And that's because the new mm. century is re- rearranging itself. Uh, the end of the Cold War, 1991, we're now 20 years on, almost 18 years on from the end of the Cold War and the collapse of the Soviet Union. Um, if you look at hist- historical changes, changes of era, they norm- there's normally a 30-year uh, hiatus and we're now two-thirds of the way through. Where did we start it then, would you reckon? I'd, I'd started about 1989. The world changed significantly in 89, but it, it was changing quite a lot before that. It seems to me... And we've this been is living because in... November 89 when the war came down. Exactly, the Berlin Wall came down. But it seems to me the 20th century came to an end in a political sense sometime in the 70s and 80s, mm-hmm. and we've now lived through about a 30-year hiatus, and the, the end of the Cold War was the last facade of, of the old world. <clears throat> So, yes, it's disordered, yes, it's difficult to comprehend, but it is statistically a safer world to live in than we had in the 20th century. Any given birth in the world now has a better statistical chance of, of, of living uh, a more peaceful life on average than anyone else, but it's not a very equal world. Hmm. But it's certainly a very violent decade. I mean, I can't think of you know, so, so many uh, instances of uh, either state violence or, or rogue violence <coughs> taking place as they have done in the last decade. Mm. I'm surprised. Biker said here that it is a peaceful world. And mm. No, I didn't say it's peaceful. I just say it's not, it's not as dangerous as 20th century. It's, it's not a decade from hell. The decade from hell was 1940 to 1949. Mm. But if you look at the world today, mm. I would say that uh, under the hegemony of the Soviet Union and the United States, mm. the world was a safe place, much safer place than it is today. Uh, and uh, 1989 is the mm. fall of Berlin Wall. That is the caesura. That is the... Uh, the, uh, basically, the end of the 20th century, and now we're in the the post uh, the, the well the the post-war world uh, where we're still grovelling around where there's no dominant ideology. You had previously, if you like, two dominant ideologies, mm-hmm. uh, and post 1989 there is no dominant ideology unless you call nationalism uh, an ideology, and uh, you then have regional powers, small powers coming up, but also the spread of terrorism and sure. the small actors. Well, well I think you could, characterize, you could characterize each of the decades of the 20th century and no difference, the first decade of the 21st, and I think it's sometimes a little bit seductive to think it's the beginning of a new century, therefore we're going to have to put a label on this century. Is it the last century was the, cent- the American century or the century of oil or uh, the century of the, the two 
superpowers and these big isms, fascism, communism, uh, capitalism. And we have seen the collapse of capitalism in this decade. And that's possibly worth bearing in Do mind. You tell that to the guys with their bonuses. They yeah, but the, the ism for this century now mm-hmm. is pessimism. That is the great ism. That's the only that, ism we hang on to. That was the great. Uh, that was the decade of the 1920s. What pessimism? Pessimism. Mm. If, if you think about the 1920s, it was pessimism, and so on. And then the 1930s were even worse. Mm. But one and gets the impression this is a decade of, I don't know. Is there a word incompetent ism? There is now. Well, it, it is an no, but we, what we're seeing, I think, is a longer-term trend. As Rosemary says, that, I mean, mm-hmm. dating from around about the 1970s, where mm-hmm. the, the nature of government is changing. Governments don't have as much power over either their own countries and certainly not the international system as they used to have. Mm-hmm. Interdependence, this globalization, is a very hard thing mm-hmm. for politicians to live with. And so, what they tend to do, of course, politicians jump for those things they can control yeah. and pull mm-hmm. the levers they've got within reach, but they haven't got very many levers that they actually can can go for. Yeah, the thing that's changing everything now is in fact the IT revolution, the globalization, the, uh, uh, the internet and the fact the uh, University of East Anglia apparently uh, it was Russian hackers who broke into it and they were paid to do it. By whom? Um, we don't know. I don't know. Um, I was told by a Russian uh, that the Russians now can hack into practically everything and, this, and then I said well I'm sure somebody would pay uh, these hackers mm. enormous amount of money to penetrate mm. the Minister of Defence in Beijing he said you're wasting your time because they have decided that you don't have emails and you don't put your data uh, into a computer you put it in paper and when you have an order you write it down on a piece of paper and you send a man to the commander with a piece of paper so therefore you can't write it. And the Americans it's beginning would have to, to sound like the barbarians in Rome. Yeah. But one of the, the Americans di- would have to the, come back no to paper. this system. One of the difficulties of identifying uh, the decade or putting a, a label on it is the fact that it's been uh, short of leaders. Uh, there have been very few great leaders in the last decade as compared to the 70s and 80s uh, throughout the world. No, the myth of leadership is gone because... Uh, a myth of leadership comes from either a state which is a, a failing state or an, an, an aspiring state, and then somebody, if you like, uh, personifies the rise and so on. And you could you could talk about it. Uh, well, they also Mar- but Kennedy, Kennedy wasn't a, a leader of a failing state when, uh, when Jack Kennedy no, was. Yeah, but, but was De Gaulle a, a leader of a, a failing France? I mean, these were big figures. Yeah, we don't Ken- have Ken- these big Kennedy figures Kennedy was the, the great, uh, I almost said, great white hope, uh, because uh, he was if he brought in optimism. But in fact, when he, when he was actually assassinated, he was failing as a president. I think it's just a question of size, actually. If you, if you consider that the 20th century was the transition from empires, finally, to states and nationalism, that was perhaps the mm. biggest ism that got us in its grip during the 20th century. And I'm not sure that it hasn't peaked. I think there's, there's uh, in this level of disorder that... Mike Clark has just talked about. Uh, I'm not sure what the organisation of political mm. space will be in the future. But I, I mention this simply because when you're saying where are all the statesmen that we used to have in the 20th century, there was room for more great figures when you had a world of nation states as opposed to a world of empires. And the, a, a fr- an American friend of mine is saying America is facing its East of Suez moment. But unlike when the Brits faced their East of Suez moment in the 1960s and 
faced up to it in 1971 and withdrew east of Suez, the Americans haven't got a benign mm. friend like America was to Britain to hand over to. Mm. It's now we're looking at the rise of China, the rise of India, and a period of great power competition in which the British will not be competing whatsoever. But if you ask anyone in the street who is the Chinese leader today, they wouldn't know. <laughs> they wouldn't necessarily know who is the leader of Russia. Their mistake. Well, no, but because <laughs> the, the there Chinese isn't somebody changes. to look up to. They could look up to, uh, or at least Mao. realize Mao, they could realize the goal, they could realize Khrushchev. Uh, well, I think Putin might get there. Listen, if we start well, at the beginning... Say, who is the Chinese leader? Yeah, who is the Chinese leader? Mm -hmm. yeah, that's <laughs> <what you laughs> Very good. Hu Jintao. Yeah. <laughs> Listen, starting in 2000, unless you believe that uh, 1999 was the beginning, but 2000, I was just going through some of the things which might surprise a few people. Bush, George W. Bush, was elected in 2000, and yet we still almost a decade later, sort of connecting with um, Tony Blair when we're talking about should we still talking about should we have gone to war in Iraq. Um, your man, Putin, he was elected president in 2000. Do you remember the USS Cole? 17? Yes. 17? 17 killed, yes. Yeah. Sailors, uh, USS Cole, by Al-Qaeda. Al-Qaeda. Uh, Ariel Sharon, that was a fascinating thing. Started the in still in, a, still in a coma still today. In a coma. Yeah, mm -hmm. and also um, mad cow disease. Now it doesn't sound particularly important, but when it's it struck me thinking about it that mad cow disease was important, mm -hmm. in as much that it was the one thing out of all that. Uh, African floods, two million homeless in Africa, mass migration, loss of confidence, Era Sharon, uh, USS Cole, Bush election, Putin elected. Even Concorde crashed. I'd forgotten the Concorde had even mm. crashed. 113 mm. dead. French Concorde. Um, but mad cow disease was the only thing that grabbed the population. Because they ate meat. Uh, and this the, is pretty basic stuff then, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. But the, there was the danger with mad cow disease that the public would then look at meat and say... Right, we're, we're all vegetarians, or we, we eat chicken or something like that, and not beef and so on. And that could have devastated the beef industry. But the beef industry has recovered, and people now uh, will eat meat. Oh, hmm. well. <laughs> you <laughs> don't. <laughs> yes. I do. Uh, but, see, no, 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 there's a problem with the, the farting animals, isn't there? Uh, don't that, we have to stop eating meat, and they also uh, are consuming too much feed, and we could be making better use of the land, and surely... Why haven't we but is that what we're thinking now and we weren't thinking before? I don't know. Listen, uh, there is something else that, you know, if we go into 2001, we start getting into beginnings of recession, the things that bother us now. But most of all, we get into 9-11. Mm. Um, and these things not simply change the world, <clears throat> but say you've got to react somehow. Yeah, that's the interesting thing. I mean, a number of people said mm. after 9-11 that whether this, whether this terrorist attack will be really consequential or not, depends upon how the Americans react. And we all know that the 9-11 attack has sparked a series of actions which have dominated the rest of our decade. And, and made heroes out of Al-Qaeda. Indeed. And, well, and people argue about you know, whether, whether it's been a strategic mm -hmm. blunder or not. But if I was bin Laden sitting in, mm -hmm. presumably, either in Rawalpindi or South Waziristan, mm -hmm. but more likely Rawalpindi, I would, if somebody asked me uh, how is it going, I'd say it's been a pretty good decade. I've mm. done really very well mm. uh, after the, the coal attack and the 9-11 the United States has done everything I could have wanted it to. 
Mm. But, but I think but it's, it's not state-sponsored terrorism. It's do-it-yourself terrorism. Uh, and it's just mushroomed all over the world from, you know, the Yemen to uh, Afghanistan. Well, to one Pakistan. reason, John, one reason, presumably, mm. is, the, is the growing sophistication of Internet that terrorism can move like that. I was thinking earlier today that... Um, they still carry messages by hand, though, don't they? Yes. It's like yes. the Chinese, yes. apparently. Yes, but you don't That's need headquarters. You don't need cells uh, sort of reporting back immediately. Uh, they have a more individual approach to what Yes, but we're doing. all getting into it. We're all looking mm -hmm. up. We're all finding things out. You see, ten years ago, the decade we're talking about, at the beginning of it, mm -hmm. not many people had heard Google, and yet today mm -hmm. it is a verb. Mm. Now, that mm. is how far we've advanced technically. The, 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 in, uh, in 2000, 3% of the world's population was interneted, mm. connected up. And this year, 30% of the world's <coughs> population is interneted. That's in a decade. Yes. And of yep. the other 70%, mm. half of them will never make a phone call. Yes. And hang on, hang on. Why won't they make a phone call? They live in places that won't have access. Right. So, I mean, globalisation is ubiquitous, but very unequal. Mm. Mm. And right. it's transforming the nature of politics, and, uh, especially the domestic politics, presidential politics. But it's the, transforming it, but it hasn't it always been like that? Yeah, but the, to go back to terrorism, terrorism to me has waned. Uh, I think it's peaked. Uh, because if it's part of natural life, uh, when somebody says there's a bomb in Baghdad, the average person will say, tell me something new. You know, it's, it's, that's a natural part of life. Uh, and mm -hmm. it's negative. Terrorism is negative. The people who win are the no, ones... if you're an Iraqi, it's not negative at all. It's a daily threat to their life. Yes, but, but uh, uh, the people who win are the ones who, in fact, have something positive to do. You, you have to grow the economy. I think uh, this is wishful thinking, Martin. Yes, I... No, I, I'm, hmm. I'm an optimist here. Uh, you, can, you can talk about uh, terrorism proliferating. Uh, you can get the internet. It'll tell you how to, how to do a bomb. It'll tell you how to do an IED. Uh, and you have to be very sophisticated. And... If you're paranoid, you would see the whole world being transformed into one giant uh, terrorist arena. I but agree, a very negative approach is not a winning strategy in the long run. However, I don't see those who are positing a positive approach to life and constructive and cooperative behaviour triumphing at all. I don't even know where they are. Can you tell, if we go back to this point of about 9-11, which you know, did change so much for us all, I mean, it's the only thing that I can think of where the average person um, probably knows what it is. Mm. If you say 9-11, mm. they know what that means. But because historically, terrorism has very seldom made a strategic yeah. difference. As Martin says, it's part of, it's part of life. But 9-11 was an attack that made a strategic difference. Mm. Partly because it was so spectacular, but then because of the reaction. Well, isn't it, hang on, isn't it, there is another argument here that uh, prior to 9-11, uh, or that sort of terrorism, terrorism was national terrorism. And therefore it didn't make mm -hmm. a strategic point because it only involved the it Spanish or the British. I mean, obviously there was Al-Qaeda terrorism during the 1990s in the uh, East yeah, Africa. And there was anarchists and, and there were uh, yeah. the Badaminov guys. Well, the, the but they weren't a big deal, were they? They no. weren't international. Al-Qaeda Al seemed like a big deal in 2001 mm. because of what it did in mm. that one attack. Did it surprise any of us? Did we, can you remember? I mean, it's like saying, oh, do you know where you were? I'm enormous surprised to, to, to see these pictures on television uh, of, of the Twin Towers descending. I, I mean, that stopped everybody in their tracks. Yes, yeah, but, but I, did, I, did, I did feel more confident of where it had come from 
than I had on some of the previous episodes when I was sort of saying, let's wait and find out exactly who did this. Um, and there was the Timothy mm. McVeigh mm. thing and why jump to the conclusion mm. that Muslims are behind this. W watching the second tower be attacked after the shock of the first one, uh, I, there was a sense that something was happening <coughs> on a global scale. Where were you when you mm. saw it? I was in my office in Chatham House and there was two doors down was the television. Yeah. But that's I, what I'm, the point I'm making is that it, it rates with where were you when we Kennedy was shot. Yeah, I was in the CBS studio here in London uh, and they were, all the American journalists were shocked and so on and they said, uh, does this shock you? Is this new to me? I said it's straight out Tom Clancy. He did a thriller in God. which the White House was demolished and the president was killed and Jap dissident mm. da Japanese. I would say this is uncannily uh, comparable to that. Therefore, to me, uh, this is a novel. You know, yeah. I'm looking at a film. That was the joke that was going around by about four o'clock mm. that day. People saying, where's Bruce Willis when you need him? <laughs> but really? I, find, I find this deeply disturbing because uh, my sense of uh, how, how to keep my feet mm. on the ground has, has been unsettled over the last few years mm. because of this notion of uh, everybody has their own narrative. It's a competition mm. uh, to grab the headlines, mm. to spin the news, to be the one that tells the story your way. And, and this sense that uh, nobody knows quite what's happening mm -hmm. and that if you can have spectacular effect through the Internet mm -hmm. and the, the, the satellite television, then the nature of warfare has changed. Now, Rosie, you're, you're, you're having trouble adjusting to the postmodernist mm -hmm. era. <laughs> Correct. You're, you're not a postmodernist, I'm afraid. Mm -hmm. and what you, you, you're disturbed by competing But do you know who, I think, who yeah. I think is a postmodernist? I think the Blair government yeah. were extraordinarily postmodernist. They actually you, believe... Hang on, you, before you do that... One of you is going to have to yeah, explain to people what postmodernism uh, is. That it, it's the opposite of the scientific method, where if you do the experiment over and over again and you get the same results, you know a fact from fiction. Mm. And the postmodernists are basically saying it's the way you tell it. Mm. And if you tell it convincingly enough, then people will believe it and then it's true. It's the end of the rationalist world that began with the Enlightenment. Yeah. That there is a yeah. rational way of looking at things. Postmodernists say, no, it doesn't matter whether it's rational or not, it's just whether you believe mm. it. Mm. Yes, and the key thing now are celebrities. celebrities. Uh, everyone wants to be a celebrity, and you want one minute or five seconds of, of fame, and therefore you go on the internet, you go on television. Or CBS. Or CBS, or you have a fashion mm. show or something, and you get your moment, and <coughs> it's very, very shallow. That's we didn't have YouTube. The, the key thing is it's very, very shallow. And it's uh, it's uh, transitional. Do you move to something else? What what will that uh, something else be? Don't know. Just make it up. But if we're into cyber warfare and the, the sense that uh, of all elements in society, the armed forces at least needed to know the difference between a mountain and a pass, um, a, a village and a town. Uh, that they were into facts. Thank you very much, because it was life and death issue. But if we're into fighting each other through telling different stories through the airwaves, which in a way is what happened on 9/11, the, the spectacular effect was on the airwaves, not in terms of the number of casualties. The effect was the killing of many more people uh, in reaction to 9-11 than died on 9-11. And also there was that period, um, I mean, the next year, 2002, I seem to remember something that struck me 
um, even more than the, was it 200 killed in the theatre in Moscow mm. by the Chechen mm. rebels? Yeah. Something that struck me... No, 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 it was the uh, Russian forces. Russian well, forces it was killed the, the Chechen. The way the victims were treated that uh, caused the... Gross uh, incompetence. But the thing that got me that year more than anything else, mm. that brought home the brutality of what we were apparently about to fight, was the, was the beheading of Daniel Pearl, mm. um, the who was the uh, Wall Street Journal That's uh, right, yeah, uh, yeah. correspondent. Yeah. And that somehow... In Pakistan? Yeah, in mm. Pakistan. Yeah. That's, uh, that's in Karachi, wasn't it? That somehow said, mm. um, this is the sheer brutality. It's almost... Um, I was going to say biblical, but it's that sort of period. Mm-hmm. It's something which we don't understand. Yeah, he was lured on <laughs> several occasions by a British um, uh, uh, radical who was operating in Karachi to, mm. to meetings. Uh, and on about the fourth mm. meeting, he was uh, kidnapped and then beheaded. And that beheading only last year has been finally pinned mm. uh, at his own confession on Khalid Sheikh Mohammed. Mm. A lot of other people were blamed for the actual beheading, and a number of people were involved in this this plot, which lured him and then kidnapped him. But Mohammed, uh, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, has now admitted or confessed to his actual beheading. I wonder if you see that um, that incident following on from 9/11, and remember, 9/11 means it was in the autumn. It wasn't just a question of the fact that it was in 2001. I wonder if that starts to give us an idea of the mindset of uh, Rumsfeld, Cheney, Bush, Blair, far more than <coughs> weapons of mass disappearance or anything else. Yeah, I think what is very significant about Rumsfeld and Bush and Blair is they believed themselves to be the gods of creation. They believed they had a mission, and they believed they could carry it out. And if you like, I see it as a zenith of, if you like... This is very far uh, American <laughs> uh, American power. And that they could affect regime change basically anywhere. Uh, that, that belief system, and you do it by military means. You have the clout, and you go in and you do it. And the other thing is the gross political incompetence, because they didn't, they never thought about the, uh, the aftermath, and they thought, well, the aftermath, the country like Phoenix like, Iraq, but this Phoenix like, was it? Sorry? It wasn't new in their thinking. No. No, it wasn't, I mean, I can remember from 74, I think it was, 1974, that old, um, Donald Rumsfeld, when he was the American representative, the American ambassador to NATO, remember him sitting there and saying, at some time we, the United States, have got to go in and start controlling mm. the, the Middle East, yes, John? Mm. And that we've got to, if we do it, we would do it from uh, either Saudi Arabia or from mm. Iraq. Mm. And that's 1974. Well, but we're but saying that's because that's in this era, when, mm. they, when we come to this era, they had power mm. without much countervailing power. So you have people with those views all coming together mm. at a time when America was seemed mm. to be uniquely able to do what it needed yeah. to do in the world. Yes, I think that's to. more important than the, the effect of 9-11 on how they saw the world. Though Tony Blair himself says that it did change his view of <coughs> the world. And I think you can see a shift from the kind of positive can-do to, you know, we can go in and rescue people from mm. dictators and we'll make the world a better mm. place. And the mantra was making Britain a force for good in the world. Uh, and it shifted with 9-11 mm. to combating evil mm. uh, and uh, we've got to hold back the tide of terrorism and dictators and WMD mm. there's also the coincidence isn't there of the um, the people like Margaret Thatcher, like the Defence Secretary Casper mm. uh, Weinberg and like Ronald Reagan whose formative years were in the 40s mm. 
and when they saw mm. uh, Stalinism at work. Yeah. And so by the time they got into mm. power, exactly what you're saying, Mike, but the difference is they're in power, mm. then they thought they would do something. And then they get rid of that burden in 89, and then we've got the new lot who say, no burdens, no cold war. They can do would they have gone into Iraq if there had been a cold war? No, absolutely not. No, 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 no. The, the Russian, the Soviet Union would have said, you go into uh, uh, Iraq, uh, we'll drop an A-bomb on you. And it would have backed off straight away. Mm. Uh, but had it been Gorbachev, he'd have backed off because he, he couldn't take a decision to save his life. Uh, but Somebody said to me his indecision was final. Mm. <laughs> <That> <laughs> he, was... he could not take a decision. Mm. And it, uh, it's quite extraordinary that the Soviet Union started with dictators like Lenin uh, and Stalin, and then they become more benign, like Khrushchev, and then Andropov, who's ill all the time, and had plenty of ideas, and Yenev Gorbachev, and he can't take a decision. I think the, the political, political legacy of 9-11 uh, in British terms was the way it um, made Blair so ready to go along with the Americans. He felt he had to show solidarity at the time of great tragedy for the American people. He was the first... A leader uh, in Europe to go to the States. And I think that established a relationship Actually, which I think he uh, revived uh, as a sort of uh, thorny special relationship and which hooked him into the American way of thinking and led, in fact, to, uh, to his acceptance of regime change in Iraq. Well, the yeah, former, the, hang on, the former director of public prosecutions, was he? I can't remember. Uh, mm. Um, uh, Ken MacDonald yeah. he said he was just completely enchanted by the whole power thing after and so did Robin Cook in his memoirs mm. uh, and, it was uh, enchantment and mm. surely we've now had Blair telling an interviewer himself mm. that uh, <coughs> what he had in mind was removing evil mm. and I would say that in one of uh, Blair's earlier speeches he singled out Milosevic mm. Remember him mm. and uh, Saddam Hussein as uh, the mm. two significant characters to yeah. beware of mm. With Milosevic, he was right, because Milosevic destroyed Yugoslavia and destroyed the Balkans, but Saddam Hussein was a bulwark against uh, Islamic fundamentalism, uh, and that seems to be dismissed. If Saddam Hussein was still there, you wouldn't have Afghanistan, mm. and Iran would be, would be behaving itself. Iran, I don't think it would attempt... What do you mean you wouldn't have Afghanistan? You wouldn't go in. If you still had Saddam, Why? what are you talking about? You there might have, have gone been... in there into Afghanistan in the first place and ignored the, the mm. ignored the diversionary mm. tactic yeah. of the diversion of Iraq. Yeah. No? I don't know. It might be. Listen, um, let's go back to 2003. Um, the war starts in Iraq. How many around here thought it would happen? Rosie? Definitely. I came to the conclusion... You always thought it was going to happen. No, I took a bet with my boss in summer 2002. He said it wouldn't, I said it would. Right, what's your boss doing now, by the way? I beg your pardon? What's your boss doing now? He's a pensioner. <laughs> um, I just I, wondered, I mean... You, he's, you, spending, uh, he's, he's spending half his time in um, Florida uh, teaching Latin American politics, mm -hmm. why? Right, I just wondered, I mean, you got it right and he didn't, mm -hmm. and he was your boss, I was mean, just thinking that. So, he uh, insisted so. on giving me the ten right. quid, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> ten quid, there Which you donated to... Uh, uh, Martin, did you think it was going to happen? Uh, I was in two minds. I wasn't convinced that we were going to go, go in, uh, but the more that the WMD, they talked about WMD, the more I was convinced. I was totally conned, totally taken in by Tony Blair, and I believed all that, and so on. And, in fact, I was. I discovered yet that the sceptics who kept on telling me uh, that I was a fool and I shouldn't believe all that, they were correct. And astonishing things that Claire Short, somebody whom, for whom I had very little International respect... International development. Yeah, very little respect in the past. What she says now is I should have listened to her years ago. 
well, if you that you actually say it like that, there should yeah, be I people to, who are not prepared I have to, to admit that I was totally wrong. Right. Uh, I was totally have, conned. I mean, that's enough of that, um, Martin. <laughs> we don't have people on this program that are wrong. Um, <laughs> Mike, uh, you it, were among those people who could go into Number 10 or wherever to brief, and mm. you'd give a very good briefing why it could be difficult and that the Prime Minister would then look at you, having heard it all, and say, yes, but he's a nasty man. Did you no. believe it was going to happen? No, I, I, I was right about the lack of WMD, but I was wrong about mm. the war. I believed until quite late on that it poss possibly wouldn't come to war. I, I thought it would definitely not come to war in the summer of 2002. I was completely wrong about that. As we got towards Christmas 2002, I thought it was still 50-50, when in fact it was already mm. cast. And I was involved in this meeting, uh, which is public knowledge now, um, in Downing Street in uh, the last week of November 2002. And it was clear that uh, the Foreign Secretary at the time, Jack Straw, was very wary of where they were going next. But it was also clear that the Prime Minister thought that uh, we would have to be prepared for um, going to the brink, mm. at least. But even then, I was still hearing from from a lot of officials mm. that if only the French will stay on board, we can we can humiliate Saddam to the point where he will be removed without actually going to war. So you're feeling then, November uh, 2002, mm. that Tony Blair had, if he hadn't made up his mind, uh, he was still he, he he'd made up his mind by then. I'm sure that he would he he. He was in too deep to, to pull out. That in, in any case, he didn't want to pull mm. out. He was with the United States, whatever the United States mm. was going to do. But there were a lot of officials around him, and I think my guess was the, 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 the Foreign Secretary as well, mm. who thought we could still avoid war, we could mm. still steer the US back to the United Nations. If the French stay on board, we can still deliver the Europeans to the UN um, and to, to support, and that somehow we can push back the preparations for war and keep on threatening it into the spring and summer mm. and get a political settlement out of this. That was that was still mm. the hope among some people. and I, But I suspect that that was a diminishing hope with the Prime Minister by then. I remember you, John, on this programme in 2002, mm. in the spring of 2002, mm. and say, yes, we will go to war. It'll probably be 12 months from now. Yeah, I was convinced very early on that the way Blair was behaving was uh, such that he would not stand up to to Bush and equally uh, annoying <coughs> straw as I did because I was um, researching a book at that time and, and seeing him and his officials he wasn't a strong enough character to um, um, put a, a break on, on the way that Blair was behaving and having worked alongside Alistair Campbell when he was a journalist on the mirror uh, I realised that he was so much uh, in uh, the same thinking mode uh, as Blair that they would distort any amount of evidence in order to prove their case. And it was pretty obvious that uh, regime change was what the, the objective of the operation was. Even in spring of Even 2002. Spring. One official said to me at the time, and I've always remembered this, he said, Eve, if this is a strategic blunder, we cannot let the Americans make it on their own. Now, that's a very curious yes. thing to say, but probably sums it up. Actually, but the interesting thing was that uh, Blair uh, had others in tow, such as the Spanish Prime Minister mm. uh, Jose Miré Azar, yeah. the Conservatives. Mm. It's one of the reasons why the Conservatives in Spain lost the next mm. election. But the Spanish went along with, uh, again with if America is mm. going in, 
and Britain's going in, then we have to go in as well because we're all part of the same. Uh, but but there's also an extraordinary mindset that characterises the the people who stayed in government and stuck with it. They start talking about failure is not an option. And I know I've been in in trouble with uh, British diplomats when I've suggested that the latest version of the Middle East peace process may well not work and it would be as well to prepare for that eventuality. And as of the summer of 2002, I was saying, let's prepare for the day after because... And in both cases, I was told... It's not the day after the invasion. Yes, of Iraq. We can't do that kind of thing because in the case of Iraq, it suggests that we might do it and takes away the notion that uh, we won't if Saddam does the right thing. And in the case of the Middle East peace process, by suggesting that things could go wrong, I was increasing the chances that they would. I don't understand that logic. Right. It's what the Foreign Office called unhelpful. But yeah. by talking, as an analyst, by talking about the range of possibilities, they say, well, that is unhelpful because a diplomat on duty could never do that. Because if you're an imperial power, you must plan for the post-war situation. Because what type of world, what type of state are you trying to build? Because it must be friendly towards you. So therefore, you must. And we now know from the Iraq inquiry that some of the senior military men were deeply frustrated because they were prevented from Mm. preparing for the day after. Yeah, extraordinary. Um, Let's nip on because in a moment I want to talk about where we go from here and the and the and the year we're just leaving. Um, I was thinking, you know, it's 2005. We've got things like uh, North Koreans. Everybody says, oh, North Koreans have got a warhead. <coughs> I'm sorry. We've got Mahmoud uh, Ahmadinejad being elected president of Iran. That is only four years ago. Mm-hmm. And now he's been re-elected, but it's only four years ago. Seems like a decade ago. It seems he's, he, he is the whole decade of, of, of Iran. The London bus and underground bombings. Um, bird flu. The idea that bird mm-hmm. flu could come around and that was going to decimate so many people. Mm-hmm. It was going to become a ba- pandemic. We weren't just thinking about Iran, Iraq mm-hmm. or whatever. We were thinking about other things that would in fact at the dispatch box or this, the mm-hmm. ministers and prime minister were having to give far more attention to. People were taking far more um, uh, interest in what we were going to be doing about things like bird flu than <coughs> we were about what we do about mm. post-construction in Iraq. Well, they were mm. also looking for a way to take people's attention off the mess in Iraq, remember. And and, and we all remember well, I think vividly... Well, genuine anxiety wasn't just a diversionary tactic. I mean, they were seeing pictures on the screens of uh, people in Hong Kong being uh, rushed into hospital, and they thought it's terribly easy for that to come here. I don't think there was... A deliberate ploy to play it up in order to get people's minds off. Uh, but look, look at the, the latest uh, vaccination scare, which is well, it died away. Uh, where With it, swine flu. It was, yeah. Yes, it was, it was uh, given tremendous emphasis for a while. And I, at the time, I thought to myself, well, the, the government are, are really playing this up uh, to divert attention. Because uh, yes, but every government then was playing it up to a divert attention. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you were Mexican, for example, you felt mm-hmm. quite strongly about it, didn't you? Yes, but it's just more or less died away now. Uh, and uh, mm-hmm. like climate change at present, it's a big, big thing. 
Gordon Brown, the Labour government, should be spending their time working out how to uh, raise employment it's too levels. Big. That's why. Can I can I ask you uh, just move on to 2006, 2007? I thought rather important years, in as much that the housing bubble started to burst, mm-hmm. and therefore governments had to start mm-hmm. thinking yet again of national priorities, which always overcome international priorities. Um, your lot were at it, weren't they? The Israelis and the uh, and the Hezbollah. That was a hell of a war, wasn't it? 2006. 2006. So. That was a terrible war. The the British government was divided over how to respond to it as well. I do remember yeah. that. And well, Tony Blair delayed going on his holiday that summer um, and was uh, seen to be in lockstep with the Americans mm. in not calling for a ceasefire. Uh, because he said it was illogical to call for a ceasefire when you couldn't implement one. It wasn't illogical to invade Iraq when you couldn't prepare <laughs> for the day after. <laughs> and also, also the point that the, um, Blair hoped that the war would be over, they'd win so quickly, mm-hmm. that would solve his problem. No, I mean, it, it, was, it was the real dividing line in terms of uh, them and us, uh, you're either with us or you're with the terrorists in the Middle East. Um, Tony Blair at that stage, and he made a speech at the end of the year mm-hmm. in 2006 where he said the whole region, if not the whole world, is divided between the good guys and the mm-hmm. bad guys and we've got to hang in um, to defeat the bad guys. I'm pleased to report that a year ago, at the beginning of 2009, David Millamand declared... The in Foreign Britain's, Secretary. Yes, that uh, the war on terror is over. We don't like the term anymore. Mm. Uh, in, 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 in lockstep with the but Americans. But he did very little to uh, restrain what was going on in Gaza. Again, he behaved as, uh, as Blair did uh, with Hezbollah uh, in, in the... A Lebanon. year ago. Can I just uh, whip us through to 2009? I, the language was marginally different, actually. And that matters. Well, they uh, didn't do anything to stop the fighting. Uh, they could have easily done something in the United Nations. They didn't. A Downing Street official said to me a while ago that um, that Israel-Hezbollah war in 2006, he said it was the lowest point for us on the staff at Downing Street. Why? It was the lowest point because we felt we were in exactly the wrong position mm. on the war. Prime Minister took a position, we had to support it. He said we had no grounding to mm-hmm. take the position we did. And for us on the staff, that, that, those were his words, that was the lowest point for us. And Kim Howells was uh, watching being the evac- Being a minister was watching an evacuation mm-hmm. of uh, British nationals from Beirut. <clears throat> and uh, he wobbled, he went off message and said, This is terrible, mm-hmm. what's happening? Mm-hmm. I mean, the point I'm make, making uh, in a way that, that that event of 2006, mm-hmm. which we forget so easily, was a bit of a turning point for British reputation in the Middle East after yeah. the Iraq mm-hmm. War. I think it stuck to uh, Tony Blair at that stage. Yes, yeah. And now he is high represented for what he yeah, called yeah. whatever. Yeah. But there was a sense of after Iraq, it was all going wrong in 2006, mm. and then there was the Israel-Hezbollah War. And, and in a way, Britain was seemed to be so much on the wrong side mm. of then, every Middle Eastern issue at that time. So how on earth did anyone think that Tony Blair could become the peacekeeper mm. of Iraq. Well, it was Washington's of idea. Britain. They were pretty much in touch with everything. <laughs> it's yeah, extraordinary for people to imagine that he would get a healing from the Arabs and be of his attitude. He needed a job that. after being Prime Minister, uh, and Gordon Brown didn't want him in England, didn't want him in London. And therefore, if he was globetrotting around... No, 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 it was, it was the idea of the White House. Mm. They thought Tony would like that. And then Tony mm. thought he was going to do work miracles and his magic mm. personality would persuade the Palestinians and the Israelis to do things that mm. they'd never done for... You're not one of Tony's babes, are you? Um, 
but the the sad thing was, and I'm you know I I I think he was even surprised. I think quite possibly uh, that it was Bush, President Bush himself, who said, "No, Tony, you're not going to do anything political. No, it's uh, only economic. Uh, uh, purely economic. Purely building yes. the Palestinian yeah. economy." Right. I want to come to the uh, 2009. In 2008, we learned all sorts of things. Well, I did. I'd never heard of Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. I didn't even, wasn't quite sure who Lehman Brothers was, but this was the American collapse. I mean, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, it sounds something mm-hmm. out of a Norman Rockwell illustration, doesn't it? Um, if we believe the decade coming to a head in 2009, <coughs> the global economic disintegration, uh, but the phenomenon of hope that the most widely watched event of the year, I thought, was probably... Uh, Barack Obama's mm-hmm. inauguration. I mean, that was even bigger television than the X Factor, and I can't say higher than that. Mm-hmm. Let's go to the United States and to the Professor of Politics at the University of Southern Utah, M- Michael Stathis. Uh, Michael, the Obama effect, 2009, a sense that the United States had elected a messiah. We're closing in on the end of Obama's first year as president of the United States, and the general opinion, I think, uh, from uh, common folk to uh, the pundits, uh, is that this president probably deserves something like a, a, a B plus. But the expectations uh, were, uh, were were much much uh, higher, and they were unreasonable. Um, when you especially realistically look at uh, uh, the task, uh, uh, home and abroad, that this president was confronting. Um, but still, this is a, uh, a public that at times can be uh, very unforgiving, and uh, we have some raised eyebrows right now. Um, but he was necessarily uh, gave the impression that he was in a president that would not have gone to war in Iraq, he might not have gone to war in Afghanistan, and would not have confronted Iran and North Korea. It is one thing to talk about foreign policy uh, during an election, and uh, I think two things happen uh, after you are sworn in as president of, uh, of, of the United States. One, there's a transformation that takes place, and you see the world uh, differently, and not always uh, very well. And two, reality sets in. Um, what uh, you wanted to do, what you hope to do, and um, what you must uh, uh, do. And, uh, uh, of, of course, uh, the uh, uh, foreign policy uh, situation has continued to boil down to two continuing wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, and uh, the, the future uh, is not particularly promising there. Uh, we, we are living uh, in this country uh, still on hopes and, uh, and promises, and sometimes those things wear thin. See, I got the impression um, that Americans felt that their their um, country was in such a mess that when President Obama was elected, they thought he'll sort it. And almost on every issue, people said, OK, Mr. President, what are you going to say about this? What are you going to do about this? And thought it was absolutely possible, never mind 750 billions being thrown in at the banks. Uh, we're sure you're right, and any objections to it will curse, curse Capitol Hill. They're just holding up your brilliant ideas. 
Well, and I think that uh, there is part of the separation. I think that uh, President Obama has come in with uh, 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 some very good ideas on uh, some topics, again, domestically and uh, in terms of uh, international policy. He has certainly uh, uh, at least attempted to infuse uh, a, a sense of, uh, of hope. Um, but uh, that's not enough. Uh, the economic situation was so uh, dire that um, uh, hopes and promises uh, uh, are, are not going to uh, improve certain things for certain people in the United States. Unemployment is up. Uh, people are looking at the prospect of uh, uh, unbelievable costs uh, uh, for health insurance if they can get it at all. And um, there, there was the, uh, the, the, the hope that uh, almost overnight with this president that uh, things here and abroad uh, would miraculously begin uh, begin to change with uh, within a year. And uh, honestly, that 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 was not a realistic uh, uh, hope. It's interesting that if you if you in in the UK and to some extent in the rest of uh, in continental Europe even um, the, the people in the streets know three political names in America now that the Kennedy generation is probably gone from politics in that way. They know, obviously, President Obama. They know um, Secretary of State Clinton. But most of all, apart from Obama, they know Sarah Palin. Now, she remains the hockey mum, the mum with the lipstick. Um, Is this madness or inspiration or just purely something that just happens and will go away? I was talking to a few people um, in the office this morning, and uh, we uh, we find it remarkable that with all of the uh, serious issues going on in the world today, that uh, she continues to uh, to get a good deal of play uh, on the news uh, programs. Personally, I think it's too bad that Aristophanes is not around uh, <laughs> to to write a, a satirical political comedy about uh, Sarah Sarah Palin. Now, she is a phenomenon. But in many ways, she is also the very definition of a demagogue. She is popular, incredibly popular with some. Uh, but realistically, she's mostly show and uh, very little substance. But, but be forewarned, American politics, the history of American politics, is full of this kind of, uh, of demagogue, and some of them actually got elected. Yeah. Listen, uh, somebody said to me the other day, uh, listen, if you are um, in a, an Alaskan uh, dog sled race, unless you are the front husky, the view is always the same. Who said that, they said? I said, I don't know, Sarah Palin. People in the United Kingdom quoting Sarah Palin, this is more than a phenomenon. It's, it's incredible. Uh, with everything else that we have to uh, to worry about this season, from health care to Iraq and Afghanistan, um, uh, th- things that have happened this year that uh, she should uh, emerge as a uh, as a major story. I lived in abject fear that uh, she was going to show up on the cover of Time magazine as the person of the year. Now that will not happen. <laughs> but uh, an economist got it. Yes, uh, and uh, actually a fairly weak field when you uh, when you looked at it. But um, still, it, it 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 is amazing. Obama wins the Nobel Peace Prize. Uh, he shifts the focus of foreign policy. Uh, Afghanistan is going to see, uh, what, 140,000 additional uh, uh, troops. Uh, Unemployment is up. The economy is bad. Health care does not look good. And 
we're talking, we're, we're quoting Sarah Palin on uh, dog sled races. Mm. Oh, my. <laughs> <laughs> Michael, go and lie down in a dark room and uh, happy new no, year no. to you. No, no, from Southern Utah University. Happy holidays, everyone. <laughs> happy holidays to you. you. Um, I was going to say, when he, when, uh, how Martin. many demagogues have been elected in the United States? I was going to cut in and say, you mean Obama? <laughs> yeah, well, there is, there is the... I mean, because he, he projected himself, if you watched him on television... He was magic. He, he had cast a spell for his audience. Yeah, and but there was also a sport that went out the window when he was elected. This is for the British, which was to poke fun at the Americans. Maybe the <laughs> quoting of Salem <laughs> Pellin is the return yes. of the uh, the uh, delight well, taken in saying that, how nice No, it's just your infatuation, Christopher. I mean, you try and get Sarah into every broadcast we make from this studio. <laughs> <laughs> we, once did, we once did Rosemary together. I want you to know. And she was. The, the, I always think the, me- the best quote of all mm-hmm. is what's the difference between a pit bull and Sarah Palin answer no pit ball and a hockey mom the answer mm. lipstick lipstick <laughs> yeah that's great stuff great stuff um, she's light relief uh, she's marvellous light, light relief because the problems yeah, of the world are so heavy and insoluble and then you come to Sarah and she wait a minute though common sense uh, let's, let's put this in some perspective because if you put it in 2009 I mean the reason that Sarah Palin is, is, is news again is she's got a book to sell and therefore she's mm-hmm. all over the networks um, we don't have a Sarah Palin light relief in this country unless you look at the, the mayor of London Boris Johnson who's actually very cute I mean I don't mean that sort of person. he's personally. got an agenda he's, and the agenda has <laughs> been the next Prime Minister but one yeah mm-hmm. it is the case that the, you know the, the mayoralty of London has been used by both its incumbents to become national politicians. Mm. And as both of them have a national politician agenda. As an experienced journalist, he knows how to play it with the media. Mm. Listen, I want to talk about um, you know, what's going to happen. Um, the British general election. A deep, a deep sigh. <laughs> well, we are, into, we are into election year 2010, mm. isn't it? Um, and that is going to be the focus. I suppose the focus could, we can start off in January, Feb, with Tony Blair in front of the Chilcot inquiry. Mm. But the big thing mm. of uh, 2010, as far as the United Kingdom is concerned, is the general election on the line. The BBC World Service political correspondent, Rob Watson. Um, the appearance of Tony Blair and the law officers uh, in front of the Chilcot inquiry really starts the, the, uh, the year off with a bit of a, a bang, doesn't it, or a personality bang? Absolutely. I think it'll be great theatre. I think there'll be lots and lots of headlines, and I think it'll be absolutely fascinating. But if you set it in the context of the general election, will it make much difference? Well, I think the short answer to that is no, not very much. I think there's a way in which the, the, the British electorate is focused to some extent on the conflict in Afghanistan, seeing as it's still going on. But I do think for an awful lot of voters, they've already made up their mind that they didn't like what Tony Blair did in Iraq. But would it necessarily influence how they vote next? Probably not. When are we going to vote very good question. Well, it could be any time between now and June the 6th. My best guess would still be that it goes on until the same day as the, as the local elections in early May. Will Gordon Brown decide that perhaps there's an advantage to be taken by going earlier? Well, I guess the, the time that he should have gone earlier if he wanted to win was uh, about a month after taking over for Tony Blair, wasn't it? About December last year, really. Listen, uh, issues... 
What are the issues going to be this, this year for him? Well, the only thing I could say with any great certainty is that I think this campaign will be nasty, negative and deeply ugly. Beyond that, in terms of predicting who's going to win, I wouldn't want to go that far. In terms of the issues, it strikes me that this is... It's, it's going to be pretty straightforward in one way, isn't it? It's really going to be the, the Conservative Party essentially pointing to, to the Labour government's record and in particular the fiscal mess that we're in and saying, what, vote for that again after 12 years? Are you nuts? And we can already see what the Labour Party, what the Labour government's uh, strategy is, which, it, which again is a, it's a sort of form of class warfare, isn't it? This is the, you know, the Conservative Party or the party of the... Of the toffs, the you know, the eaten, educated, they're the party of the few, we're the party of the many. And, oh, and by the way, do you remember what, what Britain was like in the 1980s? So I, I think it's going to be ugly. Yeah, the great test is going to be on the doorstep, is it? Do you understand June 4th? <laughs> well, you know, I, I think, you know... I think that's certainly true that the, that the electorate are going to have to make up their minds about whether they really feel like uh, another 12 years of the current government, whether, you know, whether the fiscal deficit issue really kind of plays much of an impact on them. Um, some, of course, will depend on whether the economy has picked up very much by then. But again, that, that's something that could play two ways. If the economy is getting better, people might say, well, things are getting a bit better, let's get rid of this lot anyway because things have all stabilised and we're, we're sort of sick to death of labour. Isn't it true, Rob, that... Uh after a time, all gov- governments run out of steam and people say, ah, let's just have a change. Absolutely, and it's not, just anecd- it's not just anecdotal. This is the kind of stuff that the polling evidence suggests, that the biggest factor, if you actually go into the weeds of these opinion polls, the biggest factor when you ask people why, why would you consider not voting Labour again, the one that really stands out is, well, it's time for a change. Okay. You know, we're sick of, the, sick of the sight of this lot. Yeah, see you next year, Rob. Thank you. Thank you. Right now. Uh, okay. What about this year, 2010 uh, predictions? Uh, anybody want to start, John? Well, I think one of the most interesting aspects of the forthcoming election is the extent to which the scandals of the MPs' expenses in the past uh, year are going to shift the, the balance in Parliament. How many of these new faces, the new independents... Oh, so it's after the election you're talking about, not the issues for the election? No, but uh, they will uh, affect people's <coughs> choice of a candidate when they, uh, when they look at what the candidates... They've got to be squeaky. I think they've got to be squeaky clean, uh, and those people that still fight... Uh, for an excuse for behaving the way it did, we'll find it increasingly difficult. But I don't know whether the party machines will still be strong enough to fend off uh, uh, most of the independents. Mike? Better news from Afghanistan in the spring. Um, There will be some uh, NATO-ISAF offensives to sort out some areas. The picture will look a little bit better there will be a swing of opinion in Afghanistan towards greater optimism. Question is whether among the Afghans, among the Afghans, yeah. I mean, things will look better in the spring. The question is whether there will be enough substance in that. But some improvement. The question is, is it sustainable? But right. no election, in my experience, has ever been affected by a foreign policy issue or war. I mean, no, no, it won't, won't affect the election. I'm talking uh, about what I, happens I don't, in Afghanistan. I don't think it'll affect uh, the party's standing, uh, how changes occur in Afghanistan. Yeah, I think, it's, uh, as Rob said, it's going to be a very, very dirty election. It's going to be a class, uh, class election. Do you really think that? Yeah, or is it Labour, not just a Labour's news story for now? Labour's best way to win is to say to the five million who are benefit and those who are afraid of losing their jobs and so on, 
vote for us and your social security benefits, your benefits are in fact okay. Is it not still there for, you know, uh, Clinton? It's the economy, stupid. Mm. That's what the election's about. Mm. And if you vote for the Conservatives, you'll be out of of a job, and they will cut welfare, they will cut NHS, they will cut everything, and so on. Uh, Irrespective of whether they do or not, it doesn't matter. And put in the minds of the the voter who isn't absolutely certain, uh, am I better off uh, if I'm unemployed or I'm on any type of benefit and so on? Uh, So you've got one-third of the population... If they vote Labour, then Labour's a very good chance of winning. OK, quickly. And also the <coughs> way they've drawn the um, electoral boundaries, uh, there is an issue. for it, It's it's quite a hard task for the Conservatives to win, put it that way. Or win by very much. Or win by polls, very much, yeah. Yeah. From, from a Conservative point of view, you could argue uh, what you want is a hung parliament. Because then Britain will What they want is 60 majority. No. No, no, you can argue for the Conservatives because the population at present, the the voter at present, is not willing to look at Ireland or Greece and say we're going to take those swinging cuts. We don't believe in that yet. But if you had a hung parliament and one year of fiscal disaster, the IMF saying... Oh, "Um, great. I'm not sure whether we can... I don't think the voter knows what's happening in Greece. If you look at what's happening in this country, what the cost of living, and he goes to a supermarket and he sees that milk has gone up by 20p, that's the thing that counts. If you look at the television screens, what's happening in Greece could have been. Look at it on the television screens, though. You know, if somebody says, okay, uh, where'd you go for your holidays? Well, I I went to something Arcos. Where's that? I don't know, I flew. You know, that is the extent of the, mm. of the, uh, the British unsaid for And to which they will. Papandrea was if they met him in the soup. Yeah, but Greece is bankrupt now. Yeah, and going we know, with the but we goal. don't care. Yeah, but if Greece, yeah. if Greece goes, uh, the the violence in Greece, the social violence in Greece, uh, if it expands, you get, they then have a copycat here. Okay. Now listen, we've got about two or three minutes. What are the big international issues that we ought to be watching? Iran. Out? There's only one in the world now. It's Iran and its nuclear bomb. Not Iran will have its bomb in 2010, and then everyone will have to say, well, what do we do? The only way to stop Iran is to obliterate the whole country. Really? Non-stop. <laughs> I have been trying to decide whether 2010 is the year that there is the war with Iran, and I've decided to plump for some kind of spat in the Gulf involving Iran, which frightens the wits out of everybody, including the Iranians, and avoids a a major conflagration. Right. You're going to bring down the uh, uh, United Arab Emirates? Uh, They're going to have a go at Abu Dhabi, or...? No, no, no. I mean, the Iranians. No, no. I mean, we've we've had lots of foretastes of this in terms of uh, the crowded Persian Gulf and everybody's navy trafficking around there. And we've had uh, passenger liners brought down by American warships in the past. It's going to be one of those episodes. No, hang on, Mike. Have you got something? Uh, international. I, I don't think the Iranian crisis will get significantly worse in 2010, mm. but I think Pakistan is in real danger of collapse. <clears throat> I think that will be the story. It of the must year. be, mustn't it? Mm. And that, because it affects us in Afghanistan. Absolutely. Mm. It affects us everything Pakistan we do. is in danger of going down, the Chinese will come in because they've done a deal on the J10, mm. Mm. sending them a lot of uh, aircraft, making sure that Pakistan yeah. military doesn't go down. But either China way, either way, real structural so change in Pakistan. 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 Watch Pakistan, Pakistan this year. Mm. We watch. We watch Westminster in 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 the UK this year, and we watch Pakistan. Are we agreed on that, John? I just want some regime change. A regime change in Zimbabwe to get rid of Mugabe. A regime change in Myanmar to get rid of the military dictation in Burma. Uh, No hope whatsoever. Regime change in Korea. Um, All very peacefully done. I don't suggest invasion. But on the plus side, there is every hope 
but at last a Cyprus, Cyprus settlement will come up in the spring of next year. And if you're probably going to get regime change in Britain. Uh, yes, I think we'll get regime change in Britain, if only for the reason that you've given right. uh, no, time for a change. We, 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 we've, got, we've got 45 seconds. What about a wacky thing? I like wacky things for 2010. A war, a war between China and India over uh, Tibet, the Doesn't Tibetan sound border. very wacky. Yes. No? Nothing. Uh, we all have to worry when the fashions tell us that war is on the horizon and uh, everybody starts using far too much material. Is so it? the dresses I, I, would, I would have a ban on the use of computers for more than one hour a day so that people get out and do things rather than watch things. Right. And that's going to happen in the election. I mean, could it be an election promise? Mike, have you got anything, really? No, only, only wacky. I'm, I'm waiting for another round of MPs' expenses scandals. Mm. Uh, I you think, think it'll it, happen? I still think there's, there's, there's <clears throat> more to come through. I think we'll be endlessly entertained this year with MPs. Okay. Either side of the election. Well, and it mine, tells, tells you a lot about the, yeah. yes, shall we say, incompetence. Mine is that they drop Hamilton and sign up. I know they won't. Sign up Schumacher. <laughs> there you are. That's it for 2009. Thanks to John Dickey, Martin McCauley, Rosemary Hollis, and to Michael Clark. Uh, a very happy and safe 2010 to you. Uh, we'll be back next week, next year. I'm Christopher Lee. Mary, she's still in the hut.